Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. We have a terrific show. I'm so looking forward to this. Excellent to have Kevin Muir with me, the macro tourist. And there is so much to talk about, as you well appreciate. But I'll tell you, this guy does a fabulous job. You want to make sure you listen in. Also, I've got Mike Levy. We're going to talk a little bit about the budget. And as I said to Mike, man, the budget's a difficult document because there's so many variables involved that the projections and the forecasts, well, you know, I take them, not I don't blame the government, but I take it with a big grain of salt. We got Aussie Jerk, though. Hey, we talk real estate and the down real estate market. Well, there's one area that is not down in this country, and I think the lessons learned are important. Of course, I got Victor Adair batting clean up for us uh, so much. We've obviously got a goofy award, and of course, we've got a really good quote of the week about the climate agenda. But first, you know, when I saw they were doing COP27 starting Sunday, I couldn't believe they were still doing it. <laughs> Seriously, another big climate slash emissions fest, this time in the high-end resort city of Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. I mean, that's a high-priced resort area. Five-night stay, for example, for the conference at a hotel like the Park Regency, five nights would be about 9,700 Canadian dollars. And that's, the I'm talking starting price. Of course, thousands will fly in, many others on private jets, of course, for some of them, and some, of course, will be able to float in on their yachts. But I would have thought this act, the act steeped in alarmism and self-righteousness, would have worn thin, I mean, given the obvious fallout from their no fossil fuel agenda. I mean, come on, it's, it's, it's right there in front of us. But then again, I think it already has worn thin for tens of millions of people who are living in energy poverty in Africa, when they know that 39 nations at the last one, COP26 last November, 39 nations, including Canada, committed to ending any financial or otherwise support for fossil fuel development in Africa so they can continue to live in energy poverty. I mean, this was at a time, by the way, when Europe was ramping up coal production as well as coal imports, including some from Africa. My goodness. But I think it's also worn thin with farmers in the Netherlands, Germany, Italy, Poland, who have to deal with high diesel costs, for example, and the government's push to actually close farms and reduce fertilizer use. And of course, it's worn thin in countries like Sri Lanka, who followed the World Economic Forum script and went from fertilizer to manure. And then their rice crop immediately, within the year, dropped 30%. Tea cropped 18%. I guess farmers everywhere are dealing with the fallout from the, the COP26 slash climate crowds opposition to natural gas production. Of course, because that produces ammonia and urea needed for nitrogen-based fertilizer, which pushed fertilizer prices up over 100% last year. Ammonia, 600% at one point. Well, that put it out of reach for many farmers in the developing world which will lead directly to crop yield reductions, and some even threaten starvation. It's not a surprise their act is wearing thin with millions of people in Europe right now because they're facing skyrocketing energy and electricity prices that have been exacerbated, of course, by the sanctions in Russia, but the foundation was laid through climate policy that says no fossil fuels, that refuse to look at the reality of the need for backup power for the renewable grid. Gosh, it's funny. Just going back last month, Xi Jinping, I think, would have given them good advice. He said, in quotes, we will advance initiatives to reach peak carbon emissions in a well-planned and phased way in line with the principle of building the new before discarding the old. I mean, what a concept. 
having a renewable grid ready to go before they turned off the power from the old one. But I'm digressing. The point being, the alarmist self-righteous act has worn thin, and they have nobody to blame but themselves. You know, at some point, the self-serving virtue signaling was always going to run headlong into reality. And the reality is, people need ready access to secure and affordable energy. And that's far more important than a pat on the back from Klaus Schwab or Greta Thunberg, who, by the way, isn't attending COP27, saying in quotes, the cops are mainly used as an opportunity for leaders and people in power to get attention, using many different kinds of greenwashing. I mean, COP27 will also be an opportunity for the political elites, some of them NGOs, some celebrities, business elites, to play another round of do as I say, not as I do, as they strut their great goodness for mankind, oh, excuse me, humankind. Their hypocrisy is legendary from the use of those private jests or their first-class hotels, lavish dinners. I mean, it's like they're reading from the COP27 or 26 Marie Antoinette playbook. I mean, it's all talk, and it's not walk, not walk the walk. It's an elitism, though, that's really interesting because it's similar to what we witnessed during the pandemic. Come on, that featured a stark distinction between the impact of restrictions, for example, on the so-called laptop class and that on lower-wage workers or small business owners. Come on, we know which groups suffered the greatest financial fallout from the lockdowns, while our MPs actually gave themselves three raises. Of course, there were no layoffs in the political establishment. Arguably, it's worse, though, the fallout from the no fossil fuel climate agenda, with energy price hikes and shortages. You know, of course, the elites attending COP27 or any of the previous COPs and any other climate fest, they don't suffer the effects, while people in emerging markets face serious food shortages. Lower income earners in the West worry about the cost of heating and what they're paying at the grocery store. While many worry about the cost of gasoline, farmers the cost of diesel. I mean, in the eyes of the climate elites, virtually all of us are the little people who must turn down our thermostats, drive less, travel less, eat less meat. In other words, change the way we live. I mean, the hypocrisy should not be lost on anyone as the climate crowd lays a monster emissions footprint at COP27 thanks to luxury travel, accommodation, and high living. I think the sentiments of many, though, are summed up by the author of the very popular blog, Instapundit. He's Tennessee lawyer, a law professor, actually, Glenn Reynolds, who long ago summarized the problem with the movement, saying, I'll believe it's a crisis when the people who keep telling me it's a crisis start acting like it's a crisis. Unfortunately, events like COP27 just reinforce that suspicion. Hey, by the way, this is the first week that you can buy tickets to the World Outlook Conference, February 3rd and 4th. Uh, the kickoff is right now. Uh, as I say, featuring, we've got Kevin Muir. He's going to actually attend for the first time. I'm really looking forward to that. All you have to do, though, is go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. Get your early bird ticket before they sell out. The VIP tickets always do. It's mikesmoneytalks.ca. It'll be right there. Click on the events page. And I'm really excited. I mean, we're live in person again. Oh, my goodness gracious, what we could say about that. It's going to be great. Just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, and I look forward to seeing you there. I want to bring Mike Levy in here. Of course, Mike... Uh, you know, one of the big, well, you know, depends where your perspective, but a huge story was, of course, that mini financial statement. They call it a mini budget that we got, uh, you know, on Thursday. Uh, let's just talk about what jumped out at you. 
Uh, I think what jumped out at me most is the dream that the Liberal Party has uh, going on about where we are now and where we're going, Mike, a lot of it is based on hope and wishes. But uh, I guess what jumped out at me most is the two scenarios that they put out for year 2023 and then going forward and the scenarios for are for a soft landing or for a hard landing. Okay, well, let's let's talk. Okay, a soft landing means what? Just sort of slow uh, economic growth, much slower than now, but slow economic growth. And I guess a hard landing is an actual shrinking, you know, recessionary pressure. Absolutely. So the soft landing, the minister came out and said, our GDP grows slows to seven tenths of one percent. The jobless rate of six point one percent. That's up significantly, by the way, from the jobless rate at the end of the pandemic in 2021, and a deficit of $36.4 billion. They, they look at that, by the way, as being good news. Paul Martin is probably pulling out whatever hair he has left in his head. Uh, hard landing, though, is where I think we're going to end up, Mike. I just don't see any signs why we shouldn't. The GDP will shrink by almost 1%, nine-tenths of a percent, a jobless rate of 6.6%, and a deficit of just under $50 billion. Yeah, it is interesting how important, uh, you know, that level of economic growth is. Obviously, in, uh, you know, the revenues went up in this budget or the mini budget, citing the revenues going up, improving their deficit projection. Why? Because of oil and because of inflation. I mean, governments benefit from inflation. Uh, GST alone uh, does better. But in a recession, people buy less. So, it you know, kind of offsets that. But I think it is kind of surprising to people that, that doesn't feel like that big a jump, for example, in the jobless rate, 6.1 to 6.6. You know, yes, it is important that GDP comes from a 7 tenths to shrinking 9 tenths. But man, look at that jump in the deficit, 36.4 billion to 49.1 billion. Again, it's just showing how sensitive it is to economic growth numbers. And of course, it reinforces my point quickly that the only way out of the deficit mess is economic growth and some restraint in spending, of course. And this is a government that does not support economic growth in any which way. And uh, I could get into that. But, Mike, first, I've got to tell you some of the spending areas that really got to me. And I've picked out three or four. And I think every Canadian is going to take a look and go, WTH? That's what the heck, by the way. CBC are going to receive $42 million dollars to help the CBC recover from the pandemic. I didn't even know they were infected. (laughs) Well, and you can see that is a hot button issue for a lot of Canadians, you know, a real hot button issue. Uh, They become the target. Uh, You know, there's a lot of sentiment that they're biased. You've had people like Paul Wells, senior, you know, political writer for McLean's call it the government's most uh, effective PR arm, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, they're So I think, you know, People have light their hair on fire about the 1.4 billion. I think they receive 1.3, 1.4 billion. They get anyways. Well, to see another 42. I mean, seriously, when I read yeah. that too, Mike, I just sort of said, "Wow, some people are going to need some Pepto Bismol on that one." What else was on your? Yeah. Well, uh, uh, just one more thing on this. If the CBC is getting 42 million, I wonder how much the Globe and Mail, the National Post, radio stations across Canada, TV stations across Canada, they're getting nothing. So it it just, yeah, uh, this is the government spokesperson.
Yeah, well, I'm saying, remember, they're part of the media fund, too, though. That's a $600 million media fund that's out there. We don't know the criteria. We don't know exactly who gets how much. So we have to point that one out, too. Uh, Okay, so let's go on. What else? I mean, just now that you've got my blood boiling, give me something else. I'll give you something else. One of your favorites is, and I, I, I mean favorites, your favorite to go after is supply management. And the supply management, which happened during COVID when Canadians were suffering and suffering badly with inflation towards the end of the year. And here you've got the dairy industry taking big chunks. I mean, nobody even said boo. And they raised prices by 12% on milk. And they're going to get $1.7 billion to compensate the complete supply management industries. In other words, here you go, guys. Go out and run your businesses, and we're going to guarantee that you're going to make not only a profit, but a better profit than you made before. Yeah, we've already had that We've already had that announcement of a new, another price hike for milk. We had two last year, as you said, so we're going to get another one. Of course, I come back to that's why this talk about greedy groceries is a bit superficial because we have things like this mandated price increases that come into my grocery bill, uh, you know, that also impact us. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's controversial with me, by the way. It's simply because my... Uh, we don't acknowledge the other side. And that is, this is another example where the price of our milk products or dairy products, egg products are high and who suffers the most low-income Canadians. We don't have a single political party, not one taking that on, not one explaining, well, you know what, that's costing Canadians over $2 billion a year, but again, lower income, least affordable for them. So, okay, I, yeah, I've got off okay, my right now. A couple more. Going. couple more. Um, this one doesn't need much conversation, Mike. It's just a, huh, $400 million for six months of COVID-19 border testing. Excuse me? 400 Half a billion dollars? Okay. Yeah. Let's go on to something else, which I think is very interesting. They, uh, they, the government's going to bring in a share buyback tax, 2% share buyback tax, meant to hit um, profits of companies. Um, the, the, those that um, uh, buy back their shares on the public market, and that benefits shareholders. It, it, it absolutely does. But the share buyback tax, when you look at it, when you read into it, it's not going to hurt mainstream Canadian corporations because in that same budget, there's a green initiative for Canadian companies that will get a 30% tax credit for using green initiatives. And that 30% tax I mean, they're going to be able to bury that 2% in there 15 times over. What that's aimed at, and I want everybody to be cognizant of this, this is for the oil and gas industry because they are not going to be reinvesting in infrastructure in Canada because there's no future for their business going forward. Well, and and again, let's face it. I mean, one of the things that we've been talking about on Money Talks in recommending Canadian oil and gas is that they were doing share buybacks. That's good for shareholders, fewer people to share any profits with. But the reason is because capital investment has been made, uh, you know, into extra production has been made unattractive by the government's regulation. And this won't help. But the other one, of course, is that we've been telling the oil and gas industry, especially the oil side, we don't want your product. We are going to phase out your product. Well, I'm not going to invest in new production that might take seven years to come to fruition. 
you know, to actually get into production. And then, of course, takes a huge number of years to give the payback for that huge billion dollar investment, multi. Well, why would they do it when they said, oh, by the way, we don't want your product. We're phasing it out. I mean, this is of their own, uh, you know, that's why the share buybacks and increased in dividends, which, by the way, are good for shareholders and pension funds who own them. Uh, anyways, that's what's going on here. But, yeah, I'm with you. Uh, as I say, the one thing I want to finish, with, Mike, um, is this. This is a document that comes out. And I got to admit, I just don't take it that seriously. And the reason is there are so many variables. I mean, you know, this is the finance ministry that told us inflation was transitory, you know, in December 21, you know, 2021, and then changed their mind. So I'm not blaming them. There's a zillion variables involved in making the projections that we're reading, and you have to read it with that in mind. And, and Mike, just one more thing, and this came out on Friday, were the employment numbers in Canada and the United States. And the employment numbers just blew the doors off, particularly in Canada, 108,000 jobs, well above the 10,000 projected. And that's, that, Mike, that's inflationary. It, it, it's like they haven't mentioned inflation except that they think it's going to moderate, but there is no real target of inflation in this economic statement. But you take a look at employment numbers in both the U.S. and Canada, and um, this means neither country is going to be able to ease off on interest rates. Interest rates are going to go higher, higher than what they thought, and uh, for longer than what they thought. And um, this is the first time I could say at least for the government, the employment numbers are not good news. Well, the other side is that uh, it does make their soft landing scenario more likely, at least in the shorter term. I yeah. know the Bank of Canada, most analysts are suggesting recession at some point, you know, mild recession is what the words are, you know, into 23. But this delays it a little bit there. So that's good news. That's a plus. So, But another example is what I'm saying. So many variables are impacting this. I'm not holding the government responsible for that. You know, I'm just saying it should be we take it with a bit of a grain of salt because it's a difficult world to forecast. Well, let's give you a pound of salt. How about in 20, 2027 and 2028 when we're going to be down on the deficit? I, I can't even remember some silly little figure. And, um, you know, I could be as good at forecasting 2027, 2028 than the finance minister is. It means nothing. Yeah, well, I agree. Mike, thanks for taking the time. There's, there's a lot to discuss here, as I say. My point, difficult environment, zillion variables, lots of surprises, and they're still going to hit us. Mike Levy, have a great week. You too, Mike. I've been looking forward to this for, well, for a, a few weeks because that's when we booked Kevin Muir, the macro tourist. I mean, really one of Canada's top analysts takes a look at the macro world here. And I, I, what a great week to be getting his perspective. Of course, uh, earlier in the week, we got Federal Reserve bumping their rates up three quarters of a percent. We got uh, Tiff Macklin, governor of the Bank of Canada, saying, yeah, it may, we may be slowing down, but we may need another hard rise, but pretty much guaranteeing something's coming in December and, you know, the markets are having trouble. Well, individuals are having trouble making sense of it all. And I thought, what a great time to get Kevin on. First of all, I appreciate you finding time for us, Kevin. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's always great to be with you today, Mike. Let, let's talk uh, just quickly about the, I mean, one of my challenges is to get, 
and I'm sort of a broken record and tiresome this way, to start with getting people to understand this is not your grandmother's environment. Things have changed. Things are dramatically different. And whether we're talking about uh, the rate of inflation being at a 40-year high, well, for sure, that's different. You know, the number, the speed of the rate increases, well, that's different. Uh, the size of the debt load globally uh, and uh, individual company-wise, individual-wise, that's different. And I just think it's important that people sort of have a fresh look at the challenges they're facing both individually and, of course, collectively through our countries. Yeah, so one of the things that I've noticed that that is kind of most shocking to me is that we've just had a, an experience where the 60-40 portfolio, which is 60% equities, 40% bonds, which is traditionally what most retail investors will hold, some form of that. And the reason that they hold that uh, um, portfolio is because for the longest time, bonds were negatively correlated to stocks. So when you had a situation where your stock portion went down because there was some sort of credit event and there was a crisis, often what would happen is that the bond portion would cushion that and become the ballast to your portfolio. And what's happened over the last year is that instead of that ballast being kind of something that offsets the cushion of your declining stock uh, portion of your portfolio, it's become an anchor to drag it down. And we've just seen, uh, I think it's the worst start to, to the worst year for bonds in, I don't know, is it 100 years, Mike? It's something like that. It's it's absolutely brutal. And so not only do you have the your bond por portion of your portfolio falling by the most it's ever fallen, it's also occurring at the same time that the equity portion is going down. So investors are losing on both sides. And this is unprecedented. It hasn't happened in many, many decades. And a lot of retail investors are kind of at a loss of what to do and what this means and even why it's happening. Uh, by the way, that was a great promo for why we're doing the World Outlook Conference this year, <laughs> February 3rd and 4th. But let me come to that, too. Is that I've been trying to, and I, I've expressed it many times on the show, but people have to understand that the goal of the central banks and the raising of interest rates was, in fact, uh, to make us uh, to make our assets come down. I mean, I, as I said, nobody sat in the central bank going, gee, are you surprised at that housing market? Or how about that stock market? Or how about that bond market? And I think the surprise there is, if, uh, and we're getting it throughout Europe too, et cetera, and Japan, they're raising rates, but into a slowing slash recessionary environment. Yes, you're absolutely correct. And one of the things that's changed is that we've had 40 years of disinflation. If we think back to the Powell when he raised rates and we had inflation and it was biting, you know, it was up in the in the teens and everyone hears stories about their fathers or grandfathers uh, mortgages that were, you know, 20 percent and these high rates. We've had, since then, it's only gone one way. It's been lower and lower rates. And that's been because of lower and lower inflation. And there's been a combination of factors. But I would say that there's been two big ones, one which was the falling of the Berlin Wall, which uh, kind of put a lot of people into the labor force. But even more importantly was China, China entering the WTO. And both of those things were, in essence, supply shocks on the labor component. So what's happened is with that and globalization, we've had less and less inflation. And what the central banks did is along the way, whenever we got an economic contraction, they solved it by going and lowering interest rates. 
because after all, inflation is very well behaved and it keeps going lower and lower. And so what this did, Mike, was it created an environment where the private sector kept taking more and more debt. And every time they got into trouble, they, you know, the economy would get into a little bit of slowdown. The, the, the central banks would lower rates. They would take more debt until finally we get to this point of the great financial crisis in 2008. It gets to the a level where they lower rates to zero and the economy doesn't respond, meaning that nobody wants to take any more debt because everyone's already got enough debt. Now, it varies. Canada was different than the U.S., but on the whole, this kind of was occurring in most developed worlds. And then what happened was they went through extraordinary monetary stimulus. And this is where they introduced things like quantitative easing, where they buy buy. Uh, bonds and put them on the Fed's balance sheet or or Operation Twist where they try to move the interest rates. And all of these things, initially, everyone thought that this was going to create all the inflation in the world. But uh, for many reasons, we, we could talk about those, but for many reasons, it didn't create the inflation. Now, then what happens is COVID comes along. COVID comes along and the lessons that we learned in the great financial crisis in terms of trying to fix everything with solely with monetary policy, uh, we, we know that that's not going to work. And we uh, this time we use fiscal as well. And fiscal means government spending money, putting money into our genes. And what's happened is not only did they do a little bit of fiscal, they went way, way overboard. And I was just, I, I, I haven't written this piece up yet, Mike, but I was looking through and I was going through the amount of direct fiscal stimulus that different nations did. And I was going through and like Australia was 18% of GDP, uh, Canada was 16%. And I was shocked to find that the US did 25% of GDP is fiscal. And that was just money that people, they put money into people's genes. And when you put money into people's genes, that's a lot different than letting them borrow money at a lower rate. And so what we've had now is we've had this inflation that has continued to surprise everyone to the upside. And it's been incessant and it's, it just won't go back down. And one of the things that I've been harking on is that once we took kind of the uh, once we opened the kimono of of this fiscal stimulus, it would be difficult to tell the politicians to stop doing it. And now what we're having is a situation where it used to be that we we would laugh and say that we couldn't create enough inflation. Now we're having trouble bringing it back down. And in essence, that is why the 60-40 portfolio is having such trouble is because we had a, a bonds at rates that were just ridiculous. They were too low. I was looking at the five-year U.S. government uh, bond in 2021, just a year ago. It was something like 35 basis points. Well, it's 4% now. And it was just uh, these levels were just ridiculous. And now we have a situation where we have lots of inflation. We can't get rid of it. And this is making it very difficult. And people have to think differently about their portfolios. And not only that, governments need to be thinking differently about how they manage their finances and how, uh, you know, how the economy works. That, that's the last thing you're saying is why I'm uh, discouraged or I don't have a lot of faith because I don't see the shift in government yet, whether it's I'm seeing it in terms of climate policy, which, of course, said no fossil fuels that included no natural gas, no transition fuels for the renewable grid. I mean, the list is a long one that I've chronicled right from the get go. I didn't need the energy crisis, you know, in Europe. Uh, that just was a mistake. And I see it still with fiscal policy. I, I think you're right. They're going to have a real tough time 
mean, as you say, or I don't want to put words directly in your mouth, but the gist of what you're saying is, you know, we've been generations in politicians thinking their job is just to figure out who to pay off, you know, who to hand out money to. And that either is, if something's going to end here, something's going to give here. Uh, and that's, that's my concern that we're not going to get the shift. I, I, cause I think you're absolutely right on that. You had this sort of phenomena of both the central banks getting record low interest rates while we gave 40,000 Serb checks to grade nine students. That's a fact, right. you know, $636 million went to high school students in Serb, you know, 8.9 million Canadians collected a Serb check. Only problem is that was three times the rate of unemployment. You know, I mean, the list just goes on about how they funneled money into the system. I, I think it's going to be fascinating if governments, uh, how they're going to come to a change in we're, the, we're Santa Claus. Right. Well, one of the problems, Mike, is that if we do go to a situation where we try to balance the budget again, where we go and we say, oh, you know what, we have to uh, make sure we spend less than we than we bring in. We have to start paying back down this debt. Let's not forget that that was the response that got us into this problem in the first place. That's what happened in the post-great financial crisis. And everyone thinks that Obama was the most spendthrift president out there. And the reality was that the, the Tea Party made it so he couldn't spend. And then what happened was that that's why we got the extraordinary monetary policy. So although I am, let's just say, pessimistic about governments going and um, uh, reining in the amount of spending that they that they do I, I i'm not sure that even if they did that that would solve anything because we already have so much debt and although i am worried about the inflation i'm probably not as uh, kind of concerned as many of the kind of doomers out there. If you think about if we have a decade of ten per, of a five percent inflation, and you look at what that does in real terms to the amount of debt, it it picks away it, it it reduces the debt. And I always say, you know, my job isn't to tell you what should be. I'm always interested in what will be. And when I think about the problem of the debt, there's three different ways that you can get out of debt, too much debt. And let's just talk about this as a government. One is you can kind of default on it and meaning that you just don't pay it kind of like Russia did many years ago during 1998. They just announced they weren't going to pay it. And that's never going to happen. It can't, we can't do that. The number two thing is you grow out of it, meaning that you go and you run an economy that's growing strongly and uh, and, you, and you try to grow out of it. The problem is that we're, you know what, like 100% of GDP in terms of debt. Our ability to grow out of it, we would be decades paying off that debt. There's not going to happen. And the third one, which is a tried and true method, method for you know centuries is you inflate your way out of it and you might not like it you might think it's dishonest or immoral but it's the way the way it's always been and this is why kind of pre-covid i kept warning about this and saying you know those who tell me you can't make inflation and and, and there was lots of worries that back then that you couldn't make inflation because of demographics or or because of the disinflation from technology or the amount of debt out there. And I always used to laugh. I said a government with enough political will can always create inflation. And so what I think you're going to have here is you're going to have kind of a decade of inflation. And as investors, our job isn't to figure out what should be done. We'll leave that to the politicians. But, you know, at the end of the day, we probably all know we're going to have inflation and you should adjust your portfolio accordingly. I couldn't agree more with what you're saying. I think that's going to be the response. 
uh, and I, I really like the way you framed what our job is. It's not policies I like or don't like. They're not consulting me directly. Right. It's what they're going to do, you know. But it's funny, and I will talk about individual investments for a sec. Uh, and uh, please set me straight if I'm wrong here. But that's one of the reasons, like, our 2020 World Outlook Conference looked at the push for renewables. Well, we don't have anywhere near the materials. So it was called the coming commodity boom. And that plays into the kind of thing you're talking about, too. I mean, commodities are going to benefit, I think, from uh, the devaluation of our purchasing power, you know, which is what and I agree. That's how they're going to go down this road. And I think that's the response central banks have given uh, in the last few years to every major problem. And then, yeah. you, sorry, I'm going on and on. But then you got Christine Lagarde saying, hey, we can't go bankrupt at the European Central Bank. We'll just print up more money. I, I, well, I don't know how many hints I'll get. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I do think it's funny, actually. I saw an article recently how the Federal Reserve is actually going to be losing money and is going to have to remit um, – sorry, um, they're going to have a negative uh, – uh, 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 what is it like they figured out a way to uh, to put it on the balance sheet it's going to be a negative on the equity line or whatever but in yep. essence they're going to be bankrupt and and they're going to just they're just going to account for it and this is one of my things that I kind of I'm pushing back against when everyone tells me how uh, federal uh, federal reserve Jerome Powell is so um, determined to not be the next Arthur Burns. And for those who don't know Arthur Burns, Arthur Burns was the chairman before Paul Volcker, and he's generally considered as one of the worst uh, Fed chairs out there because he allowed inflation to rise and, and, and ultimately when Paul Volcker had to come and raise rates to 18, 20% to stop it, and is the, most people blame Arthur Burns. You know, I, I don't know if Powell is going to be able to to follow through with the amount of pain that is required to, to, to bring inflation back down. And I just look at the fact that the Federal Reserve has just become uh, kind of money, like is losing money based upon the amount of assets on their balance sheet versus what they have to pay. And then more interestingly is that I did, a, I, did I wrote a paper about this, Mike, where if you look at Paul Volcker, and he rose rates to, to what, uh, 15, 18%. But at the time, the debt to GDP was only 30%. So when he did that, when he took rates from 8 to 20 or whatever, it accounted for X percent of, I, I, I turned it into basis points of GDP. And well, that amount of raising in terms of basis points of GDP has already been surpassed by Powell's raising because of the fact that there's so much debt out there and i think it's a complicated uh question and right now as we speak we're you know we're taping this after the federal reserve uh just uh, he came out and he was in the in the they're interpreting as hawkish but they can't continue this forever if we go and raise rates to you know let's just imagine let's just take it to an extreme and let's just say that he kept doing 75 basis points for the rest of the year well, the government would be bankrupt pretty close, pretty quickly. And I think that that reality is going to kick in. And ultimately, Mike, that's going to cause more inflation because as it becomes evident that we actually can't raise rates enough to go do this, that we're going to have a situation where rates won't be high enough and therefore it will become a, a kind of a, a negative feedback loop with higher inflation. I, a couple of things I want to just come back to, and one is when we talked about government spending, and I, I, I agree, you look at historically, you can't go into an austerity program 
But right. that doesn't let the government off the hook in terms of what you are borrowing and spending on. And my criticism oh, has yeah. been, you know, if you are no, no different than me myself, you know, if I am borrowing to buy a productive asset that is producing more than my borrowing rate, you know, I, I'm going to be OK, chances are. But the government hasn't been doing that. They, they, I mean, I, I'm still trying to search out an economic policy at the federal level other than increased immigration. Yeah, uh, Mike, it's so, I'm so glad you said that because that's something, I, a point that I've made time and time again. And I, you're the only other person I've heard that's actually said that out loud. And this is one of my problems with Paul Krugman, who's a, you know, a left-leaning economist. And, and although I am sympathetic to a lot of left-leaning economists, I have real problems with Paul Krugman because he's, in essence, I've heard him talk about the fact that he believes that, like, he's, he thinks if you dig a ditch and then get someone else to go fill it in, that it's good for the economy and i'm always like a, you know a, a believer in the broken window fallacy that that you know the, the, no the productive amount of our economy is hurt by that and i go back i completely agree and i joke about if you have a company and you let's just say you get a million bucks and what do you spend the million bucks on you spend it on uh, hiring the killers to come and play your concert and you have free drinks and stuff and you blow it all in a night okay that's a lot different than taking that million bucks and buying an asset that you're going to be using over 20 years that is going to create actual goods and i and i and i and i just i completely agree with you mike that too many people don't all spending is bad or all spending is good and it's not that easy you do need to be nuanced and this is one of my pushbacks to the american stimulus program they did 25 percent of gdp and you might be railing about canada we were bad but we weren't as bad as they were and in terms of the amount of money they just put into people's genes and i i I am sympathetic to MMT as a way of thinking about how the economy works. And everyone, unfortunately, the MMT is being kind of hijacked by the left as a way to institute policies. And when I talk about being sympathetic to MMT, I'm sympathetic because it actually, the if you look at it and learn about it, it's actually a descriptive way of understanding how a modern fiat-based monetary system works. And it seems to work. But the thing about it is that everyone thinks that it's actually the prescriptive part that was hijacked by these other people. But the ironic thing is that the, those people that seem to be most vocal about hating MMT is, uh, you know, our friends to the south, and yet they're the ones that actually are are doing it more so than anyone else. They went and they had the largest, uh, you know, stim fiscal stimulus out of everyone, and they were just handing people checks. And so I, I think that it's interesting. And if we wanted to talk a little bit, like we've kind of outlined some longer term, uh, kind of. Uh, let's just say kind of stuff that the investor needs to think about. But in terms of the shorter term, one of the interesting things that I'm thinking about is the fact that this MMT like extreme fiscal stimulus in the States has made it so their inflation is hotter than anywhere else in the world. And it means that their rates are higher. And it also meant that the U S dollar has rallied the most and it's created a lot of stress in the financial system. And if you're thinking about a trade, I really think that that might be a terrific time to sell your American assets. I think we're close to the end of this trade. That, and that, that is a huge key point, too. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking in terms of, and uh, again, you don't have to agree with me, but I'm thinking in terms of 
the the bell for me going off, whether you were in commodities or when gold, you know, gold wasn't going to move, in my opinion, because of inflation or money printing, it was going to be move when the U.S. dollar changed direction and, and other commodities. So obviously, because they're priced in U.S. dollars for the first part, but I think there's more to it. But I, I think identifying that point will be one of the key factors in investment success going forward. Yeah, I, and I, I completely agree for that. And I, I'll just say the one thing, like I, I mentioned how I was MMT kind of sympathetic in terms of a, of a policy. And one of the reasons was because in the past, everyone fo- focused on monetarism and they focused on the private sector credit creation, not realizing the, the government could also create credit. And one of my pushbacks to MMT is that they're so focused on the pri- on the sorry on the fiscal side the the stance of the government they forget there's also a private side and now what's happening is that the we have all this fiscal stimulus so we have one side of the boat creating this this huge amount of stimulus that is that is like you know uh, caused all the inflation. It's caused the economy to be stronger than everyone expects it. And then the other side of the boat, which is the Federal Reserve, pushing back against that, trying to offset that. And I think it's really, and this is part of the problems that that everyone is facing right now, is that the governments and the central bankers, everyone underestimated how powerful stim- how powerful fiscal stimulus was going to be. And because they underestimated it, we now have monetary restraint, meaning, you know, monetary tightness being way higher than it ever should be. So eventually they're going to offset each other. Eventually the central banks are going to cause enough people to lose their house and enough people to, you know, stop spending. And then it's going to be uh, kind of this flip flop back the other way. And it's going to create more economic volatility than we really should have. And again, I just want to emphasize that it's the individual who pays the price, lower income, especially. But, you know, our net worth, we could be losing a job, you know, all of those things. I mean, uh, this past week, uh, Jerome Powell admitted that there's going to be job losses. They've said earlier there's going to be pain. Tiff Macklin said the same thing. And I'm just saying, look who it impacts. Uh, let me just ask, and I don't want to digress too far. I, I'm wondering to what extent the Bank of Canada should have watched what was going on with the government spending and adjusted because of that, not done, uh, you know, independent decision-making, but just watch and gone sort of like, Oh my God, they're spending an extra 500 billion. Maybe we shouldn't be so aggressive in reducing our rates. Oh, I completely agree with you, Mike. Um, and I, I look back at this and I think that this is a problem with uh, the traditional understanding of, of, of the kind of by economists. And it's the fact that they, not enough people listen to the MMT uh, kind of folks that were very clear that the governments could create inflation. And you just you got to just think back and it's easy now. Everyone's like, oh, no, you know, they, they created inflation. I knew this was coming. A lot of the people that told us that it was coming coming also told us it was coming in 2008 and 2009 and 2010 and it never came and it was only those that understood that the fiscal was going to be more powerful that really understood that we were going to have more inflation so i would suggest that if governments and central bankers understood that a they would have done less fiscal stimulus maybe made it more targeted, but it was tough. I understand in hindsight, it's easy to say they should have made it more targeted, but the government should have been pushing, or sorry, the central bank should have been pushing back on that earlier. And I contend that Powell is going to be going down as one of the worst Fed chairs in for in ages. And I'll tell you why. Most people say, oh no, it's just because he's all hawkish now. And I say, I disagree. He was extremely dovish 
during the COVID uh, response. If you think back, he actually changed the framework. He introduced what's called flexible average inflation targeting, where he argued that the the the, federal, the central bank could allow inflation to run hot for a while to make up for the period it was below. He talked about minority unemployment and how it should be equal. He was the most dovish we've ever had, and now he's gone to the most hawkish in decades. And what it's a result of, it's a result of him not being confident enough in his policies and not understanding things enough, and he's running from one side of the boat to the other side of the boat, and that is where my real complaint with him is. If he was hawkish, hawkish uh, earlier, like right now he's being extremely hawkish, but if he hadn't been so dovish at the lows in terms of when we were in it, we wouldn't be in this problem. And I contend as well, one last thing, kind of I'll, I'll go on my Powell rant here. He argued that he couldn't raise rates in late 2021, early 2022, because he was still doing uh, what's known as quantitative easing. He was still buying bonds. And they view that as uh, an easing. So therefore, he didn't want to raise rates while he was easing. And it's just BS, Mike. The, the reality is that the financial plumbing works. He could have raised rates. He could have gone down quantitative easing while he was raising rates. In fact, the Bank of England just did it. They were raising rates. They have rates above zero, and yet they're still doing quantitative easing. It was it was just to him not being brave enough to stand up and do it again. But I would contend that not only was he not brave enough, I don't think they understood how much inflation was coming and how powerful fiscal was going to be. Well, to the credit of the Bank of Canada, they started pulling back on their bond purchases. Off the top of my head, it was October, I think, 221. Right. And, you know, it was early, way earlier than that. I think uh, they the, also the, led on the way up. I think that yes. they were ahead of, of, of Powell on the way up. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll spare them a little, bit, a little bit of that. But here's another thing, though. Is there any chance to get inflation under control with the way the energy market is? I mean, I'm certainly in that camp that says you don't uh, – I, I lived in India for over a year and have traveled extensively in that part of the world. And I'm proud to say when COVID hit, I'm not kidding. I had comments in Mar uh, uh, March of 2020 saying, oh, my gosh, wait till you see the devastation in the in the developing nations. You know, we're always talking locally and they do COP26 and they only talk about, uh, you know, Western nations, basically. Their policies aren't appropriate for the developing world. And I, so I just look at the energy shortages, lack of capital investment there. And I don't know. You know, over time, there'll be ups and downs in that market. But I don't know how they really get inflation back down to what they're talking, 2%, when the energy market is not going to cooperate at all. Yeah. So I, I don't disagree with you that, that getting inflation back to two and below is going to be extremely difficult. And energy will be one of the issues. Uh, I, I've said for a while now that two used to be a ceiling. If you remember, every time we'd go yes. up to seal, we, we'd kind of dip back below. I think two will be a floor. Like if we go to two, it'll very quickly bounce and energy will, will be one of the things. Mike, I can't believe how dumb our politicians are being about energy. And like, I don't even know where to start. Uh, it's shocking to me that uh, that like, let's just take Biden, for example. He's going and he's sucking up to the Saudi Arabia and let's just. I don't know. I, I should probably be politically correct. Let's just say that uh, in terms of the the morality of Saudi Arabia versus Texas, I think that I can be pretty confident that the Texas folks live by a, like a little more of a of a of, of a moral code that 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 confirmed conforms with ours. So yet, instead of going to Texas to ask them to pump more and to figure out how to do it, he's going to Saudi Arabia to pump more, which makes absolutely no sense to me. It like, you know, it just makes 
I'm, I'm perplexed. I'm, I'm, I'm aghast and it just shocks me. I, I feel like we're only slightly better. Uh, and even just between the U S and Canada, it surprises me. Why don't we, you know, like we can go towards green energy. There's nothing stopping us from making a decision to go toward green energy. But the thing that they're missing is that as you make the transition to green energy, it actually requires more energy. You need yeah. to make the infrastructure. So we, so not only do we need to have, you know, like the regular amount of fossil fuel until we replace it with green energy, we need more fossil fuel as we're making this transition. So it seems to me that like, you know, embracing Canada and embracing Texas to, to pump more for five or 10 years as you make an investment over the long run for a move to green energy makes lots of sense. But yet, I don't know. I guess that's given them too much hassle. But back to your question about whether we can get inflation back down to 2%. I think it'll be difficult, but I don't think it's going to be quite as hard as everyone thinks because a lot of the problems with inflation that we're experiencing now, although there is a huge element of it that was demand-driven by extra amount of fiscal going up, there was still an element of it that was supply-driven. There's still an element oh, yeah. of it what that is that you know that people couldn't make factories, and then there was everyone asking for something at once, and so I suspect that you're going to see some uh, regular disinflation and some reduction in terms of from the good side, and then the other thing is that there's this thing you know uh, the rents and the way that they calculate the uh, housing side of the component, and it's complicated, but it's in essence it has a lag. And so when we're we have persistent inflation right now, part of it is because we're getting the inflation, the, the housing inflation from six months, nine months ago. And that's causing us to have a persistent bid to inflation that doesn't really exist. So although I am, you know, as I said, I believe two percent will be a floor. I don't think we're going back to ones and, you know, sub ones anytime soon but i think that it wouldn't take that much for us to get to uh something like you know three and three two to three i don't think is that is is that hard and mike i'll just tell you one last thing i looked at the crb raw industrials the other day these are in uh in uh, commodities that are that aren't typically traded they're not they're not as much uh prone to speculation and that index has retraced 50 percent of the rally that it's had post COVID. And I do think it's going to go up again. It's going to go and for all the reasons that you and I talked about as investors are going to buy things to real assets to in, to protect themselves. But having said that, I, it wouldn't surprise me if we have a little bit of, of disinflation for three to six months. Uh, and let's let's keep going on that. I know I've kept you a little late, but I want to uh, give sort of a, a hint as to what we're going to look at. I mean, our whole goal here is to protect people. And, uh, you know, get them aware of what's going on in the dynamics, et cetera. What does this all mean to you for individuals? I mean, are you still hanging back when it comes to the broad stock market looking for an entry point or maybe never getting back in, you know, et cetera? Well, no, I do believe that there are opportunities in the stock market, and I, I, I suspect that one of the big problems that a lot of investors are facing right now is that they're long stocks that have worked for the past decade. And if you think about what's worked for the past decade, it's American stocks, and it's often technology stocks. It's those big fang mats, they call them, Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, Alphabet, and, uh, what's the other N? I don't know, but and then Tesla. And those stocks are over-owned, they're overpriced, and even though 
though they've gone uh, kind of smushed lately, they're going to go a lot lower. I believe it's going to be something that's going to be, we're in a secular bear market for those stocks. Having said that, there's lots of traditional value stocks that are great buys. that are things that are cheap. They're getting thrown out. Uh, small cap stocks, I think, are dirt cheap. And I think that, that uh, a lot of uh, pundits will say this is a stock picker's market. And that's kind of the, like the joke about it. It's always a stock picker's market. But it truly is. And and I, I, I believe that those who just went and buy an index and buy the, the winning index of the last decade, they will lose. So I think that's the first thing, that you can buy stocks and that they will work. I do think that bonds... You can trade them around. We might get a rally here. You might get a chance to buy them. At least they're now positive yields that they're so that they'll do well. From that perspective, you'll actually be earning money. I do think, though, that there's still more pain to come over the long run. And I think that in real terms, they're going to suffer. I suspect that before this is all through, the curve is going to what's known as steepen, meaning the long end is going to go up in yield. And eventually, I suspect that we might even have a situation like we did in England, in the States and in Canada, where they lose control of the long end. But the number one thing that I actually think that more investors need to do, and it's difficult right now, but they need to start thinking about trading inflation. And when I started learning about inflation, um, I guess I really got kind of interested in it five years ago. And I started thinking about all the different ways to trade it. And I, and I realized that Ontario Teachers actually has um, a bucket within their portfolio, within their asset allocation that is called inflation. And so it's not the real assets. It's not the infrastructure assets. It's actually called inflation. And so they have stocks, bonds, infrastructure slash real, and then inflation. And what that inflation bucket is, is actual trades where they go long inflation break-evens, inflation swaps, and different strategies of that type. And this has been the one thing that I think that many people have missed. Not many people trade it. It's complicated. It's hard. But I think that we're going to find um, five years from now, we're going to be like, oh, you know what? That was something that we should have traded more of. It should have been something that bit more investors took care of. And I suspect that it'll be something that will help your portfolio and it will become hopefully the new ballast to replace the bond section well i mean i'm getting excited already for the world outlook conference kevin this is just terrific stuff and i was just uh, kevin doesn't want me to do this but i'm doing this you can find kevin at the macro tourist macro tourist just as it sounds macrotourist.com but you can also get it on substack and I've really enjoyed uh, the podcast. I always say to Kevin that his podcast, The Market Huddle with our friend Patrick Sarizna, uh, is a lot more fun than this one. It's a lot more fun than this one. <laughs> but I want to recommend it too. Uh, uh, Kevin, uh, really look forward to getting a chance to see you at the World Outlook Conference. But in the meantime, thank you so much for finding time. And I know I've kept you a little longer than I said, but I apologize. But it's such great stuff. Oh, I know. It's a lot of fun. And I'm looking forward to seeing you next year and, uh, and, and even get some skiing in maybe. Beautiful. We'll arrange it all. <laughs> all right. Sounds good. Thanks. Looking forward Thanks, to it. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks. Bye-bye. Time now for the quote of the week. 
You know, one of the main criticisms of the climate agenda, at least in some quarters, has been that it seems to be more about expanding the size of government than actually reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Certainly have a lot of examples of that, of government programs that have been initiated, but no real net result in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. Canada has been a classic example of that among, among the G7 nations. Our own environment czar says that we've done the worst when it comes to reducing CO2 emissions. But we have protests by climatestrike.org and climate extinction. They got a lot of uh, uncritical coverage, of course, but they clearly state in their website that the goal is, in quotes, climate justice. Now, nearly two years ago, media darling Greta Thunberg echoed those goals. And she stated, in quotes, the climate crisis is not just about the environment. It's a crisis of human rights, of justice and of political will. Colonial, racist, and patriarchal systems of oppression have created and fueled it. We want to dismantle them all. End of quote. Well, this week, Greta went further. She has a new book out, and she was being interviewed, and she said in quotes, What we refer to as normal is an extreme system built on exploitation of people and the planet. It is a system defined by colonialism, imperialism, oppression, and genocide by the so-called global north to accumulate wealth that still shapes our current world order, end of quote. She also went on to say that the climate crisis is rooted in racism, oppressive extractionism, I don't even know that word, by the way, that is exploiting both people and the planet to maximize short-term profits for a few. In her own words, her goal is to overthrow the capitalist system. As I say, that comes right back to some criticisms of the climate agenda that have been rooted for a number of years. But again, I'm not going to get into a big debate about the capitalist system. It's not a perfect system. But I think it's easy to make the argument that no system has been better, especially if you want to compare it to more government control, whether you call socialism, whether you call it totalitarianism or communism. As I've always said, I have nothing against socialism except that it's failed in every area where it's been tried. You just look at government control over so, so many aspects of our lives. It's hard to give a big check mark, whether we're talking about our health care system, the passport system, uh, where we rank as, uh, you know, Vancouver ranks as a port throughout the world. There's a number of things. But the bottom line is, yes, she wants to overthrow the capitalist system, echoing many in that movement. But at the same time, it's not a critical look at what the alternative is. I want to bring Ozzy Jerk in now. Time to talk a little real estate. Ozzy, before I get, I got a, an economic subject with you, I'm going to get to in a second, but let's just give a, a quick brush on the numbers. And I know they're not all complete, you know, at this point, but we've got a blush of what happened in October. Yeah, it's no question that you're looking at the Vancouver, the sales in single family homes are still down 47 whopping percent and the condo sales are down 45 percent. And the average price in Vancouver, while we continuously keep hearing that prices are higher, and it's true if you look October over October. But since February, um, actually since April, the single family home in Vancouver is down from 2.3 million, some $245,000 or 12 percent. And then in the Fraser Valley, my goodness gracious, single-family home is down a whopping 24%. So that hasn't changed, but there seems to be a leveling. I, I think we're, we're going to get to the bottom soon because we've seen a, a substantial supply uh, decline. Toronto is down some 30%, and the counter-trender is what? 
you never believed it, but it's Calgary. You look at Calgary condo sales actually up 21% when Vancouver's are down 47%. The active listings are down as Vancouver's are now up, you know, so dramatically, almost to the same percentage. And the prices are 11% high on condos and 12% high on single family home. Hey, what's going on in Calgary? Well, let me let me just a- a talk a little bit about that because it is interesting that, first of all, it comes with, like, if I don't have a job, I don't care about other factors. You know, I mean, I'm not going to move there. But as you've noted, uh, going back a couple of weeks, you were launching the in-migration numbers coming into Alberta as a whole, you know, the best since 214, 215, you know, four consecutive quarters. Well, again, maybe attracted by a lot of factors, the underlying energy market certainly, uh, you know, helping. But then all this other stuff starts being important. Yeah, and the interesting thing is StatsCan says 10,000 more people relocated to the province in the second quarter. And the reason this is interesting, they come from Ontario, BC, Saskatchewan, even the Yukon. Well, it's housing and jobs. The province has no property transfer tax, no provincial sales tax. Gas, are you crying yet in BC? It's a dollar forty-nine, not two ten. And then when you take a look at the operating revenues in a farm, is twenty-two billion. The eighty-seven billion in in all of Canada, a whole quarter of them is made. In, in Alberta. And of course, 80% of the oil production is there. We have some 4.3 billion of renewable energy projects. It's really been not too surprising that people saying, okay, I want to move there. And now, Mike, the most astounding thing to me is when I looked at some of what is for sale, I saw 10 homes listed at, are you, are you sitting down, 54,900 for 700 square foot two bedroom condo. I mean, I mean, in Vancouver, you could buy 10 for 10 at that price. Yeah. No, it's amazing that when you uh, look at that, I mean, it's tr- traditional. You've always said, by the way, Ozzy, you did very well. I know coming out of the subprime crisis, you jumped into that Phoenix market and you said, well, you know, real estate values go where jobs go. You know, and that's that's the starting point here is a revival of the energy industry. And I think, again, we've made it clear in this show for well over a year and a half that we felt there was a long-term bull market happening in energy uh, simply because of there's been no capital expenditure globally uh, to meet the demand that's that's still coming, especially out of emerging markets. You know, not just the opening up after, you know, COVID restrictions. But again, those differentiations start to matter. I mean, yeah, someone looks at that and goes, hey, I can get a job and my house is like a quarter of what you'd pay in Vancouver or Toronto or Hamilton, uh, even Montreal. You know, that kind of thing starts uh, really attracting people. Well, it was interesting. I was I mentioned last week I was talking to this Keaton Kirkwood. He's a mortgage broker in Edmonton, and he actually moved to Edmonton with his family. And he says, Ozzy, do you know that taxes is, isn't we always talk transfer taxes and provincial sales tax, but actually when you compare yourself against every other province in Canada, Alberta has lower personal corporate taxes, no sales tax, fuel tax, carbon charges, which are excluding the federal carbon pricing backstop. Tobacco tax, health premium, payroll tax, liquor tax, land transfer tax, and other minor taxes. Now, the percentages blow you away. It's 27% higher tax in Newfoundland. It's 25% in Nova Scotia. It's 15% in Ontario and NBC. It's 21% higher. My goodness gracious, there's more reason than just the job. Hey, you have more money in your pocket after you have earned the, the money that you make. It's- 
it's interesting if we go back, you know, and I know we're going back well over a decade, but you saw that out migration from British Columbia into Alberta, the head office moves there. And it's, again, it's just another illustration that costs matter, taxes matter, you know, all of these things. And I, I've, I just was uh, chatting with a wonderful group uh, from uh, Alberta Cement, you know, the uh, Cement Association in Alberta, and just saying I was optimistic, especially relative to other provinces, simply because of the things you're just alluding to, that we're starting to see the benefits of that, the competitive advantage there. And as I say, I, I'm optimistic about uh, the longer term trends in the energy market, and it's certainly starting to play out. Uh, but it, it's also interesting. We went, I'm going back a few years, and forgive me for a little bit of a uh, pat on our backs, but talking about the close relationship between real estate and oil and energy prices, natural gas too, of yeah. course. You know, and so I'm not, a, I'm not surprised, but with those people moving in, maybe the era of the very low relative Alberta numbers is coming to an end. I mean, that demand is going to make a difference going forward. That's, that's the interesting thing. The, the condo market in Calgary is just rip roaring. You know, I mean, there's still problems for in the office sector and so on, but it is really dramatically changing. And I guess the householder in Vancouver says, how much is an average house in Calgary? 623,000. How much is it in Vancouver? 2 million. And that's down. <laughs> Two, yeah. two million, right? And so a quarter of that for my house, and I get a, get a great house. If I want to spend a million and get the upscale ten percent of the housing, or I want to buy a condo, and the average price is two hundred seventy-seven in Edmonton, I can get a whole bunch of condos and say to my wife, you know what? Get some snowshoes. You know, we'll get you a parka, some great duvets, and we are moving. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm obviously happy. I mean, clearly Alberta suffered, uh, you know, post 2014, you know, for a number of years, very difficult times for many people. Uh, that is reversing itself and I couldn't be happier. And it's also good for the country as a whole. We just saw the federal budget. We saw revenues increase and energy played a large part. Inflation played another big part, as I was alluding to earlier. But I'm happy to see, you know, that recovery. But let's come back to the rest of the country. You're still seeing the doldrums clearly, as you say, though, you're suspecting we'll come to a period where it's sort of at least bottom out, I guess, is the best way I could put it. Yeah, and as long as we as investors realize that there is nobody is lying when they say prices are up over last year. It's simply what you measure. If you measure September over September, October over October, prices are still down relatively small or even. But as an investor, and, and maybe somebody's a homeowner, you simply cannot afford not to drill into the numbers. The high was between February and April, right across the country. I mean, you take a look, the average price is over two million in Toronto in February, and it's now a million five. You can talk to your blue in the face that it's 4.8% down over last year. So understand what you're looking at. But now when you're down that much, there comes a point where, hey, we're going to be slowing down. I mean, what did we expect? Did we expect the Toronto house to go up to two and a half million, then three million a year after? No, it had to take a breather. We're taking that breather and an end will come down as soon as we solve all the other problems in the world. Well, it, it is all interesting to note, though, is when you look at the major centers where I have data for, there's never been a sharp downturn, including, you know, 08, 09, you know, into 10 that didn't result in higher prices. I'm going back because I'm an old guy. You know, I go back to the uh, 
the market in 1980, 81, when that sort of bubble had burst. But again, if you came back a few years later, it was higher. So it's not necessarily negative. I, I, you know, the last thing I'll go with you, Ozzy, is you saw the latest numbers. You've been chronicling the increase in uh, new, new people coming into the country. Well, the government uh, elaborated on that or, or gave further details. And we were looking at 500,000 new people coming into the country in a couple of years, 1.4 million over about a three-year period. Well, they've got to live somewhere. And I still say that's the bottom in real estate, that you have, you've put a floor in because we already had a housing shortage, already had a condo shortage in major centers. That's going to push it back up, let alone other factors, but that's still in play. Yeah, and you look at last week, you know, we always report the negatives, but a building in, in New Westminster was marketed by Key Marketing. It's talking to Cam Good. It was like 146 units sold in a half an hour. So that we haven't heard that in a, in a year. Now, there's a lot of buildings coming back. But as you said, I think inflation is baked into cake. I don't care what they do. We may we maybe next year go down to 5% or whatever it is. But whatever the inflation rate is, will settle down in real estate down the road. But in the meantime, we're going to go through the valley. But we will, like you say, come back on the other side into the sun of higher prices. <laughs> well, join Ozzy Jurek at ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, thanks for finding time. Thank you very much, Mike. And the latest issue will be out this weekend. So anybody would like a copy, sign in at ozbuzz.ca, and it's a free blog. And, Mike, I just want to leave you with that thought. I was reading Isaac Asimov, the future uh, science fiction writer, and he said, people who think they know everything are a great annoyance to those of us who do. <laughs> How appropriate. Ozzy, thanks. Have a great week. You too. Time to go live to the trading desk now. Victor Adair, I call him my cleanup hitter because every week there is so much to talk about. We could do about a 12-hour show or more. Vic, I got to start, though, with, of course, everybody was watching what the Federal Reserve would say, not what they did. Everybody thought, I mean, the percentage was something like 85 to 90 percent of analysts thought they'd raise interest rates by three quarters of a percent. They did. You know, that's what's Wednesday. But it then sort of trying to predict the future. What's the crystal ball about what the Fed's going to do with interest rates? And man, I'm just watching a lot of disagreement there, a lot of volatility in the market coming out of it. Well, and because of that disagreement, we've had incredible volatility. I'd call it brutal volatility all across the markets, whether it's currencies, equities, credit, commodity markets, everything. And like, you know, to have a 500 point move up or down on the Dow in five minutes has, has just become sort of normal. <laughs> you know, the past couple of weeks here. So we've had lots of volatility. The market's been trying to anticipate what the Fed's going to do because the market wants to price in the future. That's what markets do. And the thinking, the, I, I call it the market's been hunting for peak Fed ever since June uh, without success. And we, it was, again, without success. The, the net takeaway after the Fed meeting on this Wednesday is – the Fed's going to slow down the rate of increase, but they're going to raise rates higher than what the market had previously thought. So then the market had to go chew on that for a while and decide what to do. Yeah, I can't emphasize enough how uh, there's a disagreement about what the Federal Reserve doing. Top analysts, I look around, I read a ton. Uh, but uh, I'm talking, let me just share with you, Vic, what I took away from that, that 
not changed my mind that I thought was another piece of, you know, a piece of the puzzle. And that's, you know, the analytical world is saying, you know, be careful. If you keep raising rates, you're going to break something in the system. Allo, what happened in the UK with their pension system? That was breaking. Central bank jumped in. Allo, what's happening in Japan? Central banks, you know, jumped in. Well, here's how we addressed that, though. And he hadn't addressed that up to this point. He said, you know what? I got two choices. Maybe we go too far and we break the system. But I have or something in the system, but I have tools to deal with that. But if I back away from my inflation fight too soon and inflation then becomes more entrenched and keeps going, I have no tools for that. So given the choice of the rock and the hard place, I'm choosing the risk of breaking something. And that's what I took away from that. I'm not, you know, I'm just sharing with you that that's what I took away. And I thought, oh, my goodness. Because he's dealt with the biggest criticism by saying something may break. And he's saying, I know, but we got tools to deal with it. So I kind of think he didn't give me any sign, me personally, any sign that he's backing away. Yeah, I agree. You know, and the fact is, though, what, as I just said, markets are trying to price in the future. Everybody heard that loud and clear. And I'll tell you, as he spoke that, I was watching my short-term screens and the markets just dove. I mean, the equity markets just plunged on that. It was like, oh, my God, we thought maybe, maybe, but no, it's not going to happen. But then, you know, it's not like we're down 2,000 points on the Dow since then. The market seems to be trying to come to grips with it. And if I could switch to the currency markets, I've been thinking that if there's going to be a turn, like in, in market thinking, it may show up in the currency market first, like before the equity market, before the credit market. Certainly these things all watch each other. But we are seeing the U.S. dollar weaken here at the end of the week after, you know, he's saying, in effect, we're going to be the biggest, meanest, toughest central bank on the block. And the currency markets are going, OK, we can live with that and sold to you. Yeah. How do you determine whether it's uh, like, you know, the U.S. dollar has been so exceptionally strong over time. Uh, I'm trying to wonder, how do I determine if it's a change in trend, like a major change? Because I think that would be so significant for whether you're measuring commodities. And, just you know, I've been saying for, gosh, it's about eight years. The number one, if I could only know one variable is tell me what the U.S. dollar is going to do. And this and I continue to think that way is incredibly important. But I'm sitting there going because you you flagged it for us right on the right on the number. You said, you know what, Mike, I expect some weakness right now in the U.S. dollar. I just want to know that that 64 trillion dollar question is, is that sort of a change in trend or just a market reaction? You know, things take a break. Yeah, well, it, and we never know that until well after the fact. You know, I talked about uh, key turn dates last week, but the key turn dates had happened two weeks prior. Like you need to see something happen after the turn. Uh, the U.S. dollar made a 20-year high in late September, and since then it's made some lower highs. It, I mean, it's kind of gone a little lower in a in a sawtooth sort of pattern. Uh, I will uh, develop some ideas about what I think might happen. And then I look at price action for confirmation, to put it in the simplest way to answer your question. I'm just looking at the chart and thinking, you know, this looks toppy on the U.S. dollar. And just like you, I go, I think, wow, if the U.S. dollar is topping, then that changes a whole lot of things. Well, speaking of that, so we talked Federal Reserve. The other big thing came right at the end of the week. And I think caught a lot of people by surprise is all of a sudden the market decided 
that China may be lifting their restrictions. And we've said all along in this show, the commodity bull market will not resume until China comes out of lockdown, whether we're talking oil, copper, et cetera, et cetera. And man, what a move we saw sort of, I guess it's Thursday night into Friday. Yeah, the the Chinese RMB, the offshore RMB, had its biggest one-day rally in like forever. Uh, we had copper prices up, I think, 30 cents a pound on the day. Uh, all of the base metals jumped. Crude oil, I guess, is a WTI is up about $8 on the week to the highest levels we've seen in certainly over a month. So the commodity market went big because if China is reopening and, you know, the market may have it wrong, but if they are reopening, they're, you know, they're going to start buying commodities again. At least, you know, that's what the market thinks. Well, my, my thing about that was a great distinction, as we've said all along. As a trader, you're looking for opportunities, you know, on the shorter term. As an investor, my point was, did we really think China was never going to open again? I thought that was absurd. So, uh, you know, as an investor, I could position at least some portion of what I want to commit to that commodity sector, given how much it had sold off. And uh, this is an example, because when it changes, it changes quickly. But as a trader, you've got to consider a lot of other things, because you may be in this trade for two days, you know, or, or two weeks or what have you. You know, in terms of why the market might think there's a reopening, you know, she just was basically appointed dictator for life here two weeks ago, and the Chinese stock market didn't like it. We went down and made new multi-year lows in the different Chinese indices. And yet, here the past couple of days, the stock market in China has been sizzling to the upside. So it's kind of like somebody knows, okay? Somebody inside China knows that a change is coming. So that's when maybe the copper market, the zinc market, and so on, thought, hey, you know, what's happening over there? So maybe, you know, at, at, and now we've got those markets rising. What a, what a great insight that is, is that, you know, obviously we're talking about the communist system, but that happens here. We had Tyler Bullhorn on a week ago saying when he starts seeing that volume develop and that price action develop, he knows he isn't the guy who's going to know why. You know, we as the public aren't going to be the people who know why. That's why you look at price action and it's volume picking up and know that what you've just expressed there, somebody does though. And in the communist system, that's not hard to believe, you know, that the public isn't the first to know. So, yeah, what a fascinating thing. I mean, one obviously that we'll all keep our eye on. I got to figure you are going to be very busy this weekend. You've got to update victoradare.ca. And I know, of course, your trading day starts on Sundays. Yeah, well, and then the week coming, we've got the midterm elections in the United States on Tuesday. That is going to be or has the potential to just be huge. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm glad I'm getting old and gray, Mike. Otherwise, uh, this volatility would be just way too much for me. <laughs> well, it's, it's too much for a lot of people. And we're happy you're there to chronicle it for us. Thanks for bringing up the midterms. Of course, that's a huge red letter day and see how the market reacts to whatever outcome we've get. And you'll be here to do it for us next week. But again, victordare.ca, see what Victor's latest thoughts are. Vic, well, I could say have a terrific week and I hope you do, but you're going to be busy. Uh, Thanks, Mike. <laughs> Got a good Goofy Award for you. Stay with us. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know, my first thought when I read about the stream of celebrities who now left Twitter because Elon Musk has become the owner was, say it ain't so. How am I going to find out what to think on all the big issues without celebrity input? I mean, the science behind climate change or the right way to think about various social justice issues. 
Of course, the outrage is understandable, given Musk stated in quotes, the reason I acquired Twitter is because it's important to the future of civilization to have a common digital town square where a wide variety of beliefs can be debated in a healthy manner without resorting to violence. I mean, his goal to have a wide range of beliefs debated in a healthy manner, well, that had to be the last straw for many people. But the push against a wide range of opinions didn't stop there. Musk tweeted on Friday, in quotes, Twitter has seen a massive drop in advertising revenues due to activist groups pressuring advertisers, even though nothing has changed with content moderation, and we did everything we could to appease the activists. Extremely messed up. They're trying to destroy free speech in America, end of quote. I mean, some of those countries are, uh, companies are like Pfizer, Audi, Mondelez. I mean, it's a growing list. The point is nothing has changed on Twitter except Elon Musk's commitment to have a wide range of viewpoints. Now, you might want to note that these businesses and celebrities didn't have any problem with the censoring of like the Hunter Biden laptop story or quashing anybody who's happened to mention that COVID may have been uh, originated in a Wuhan lab. Or what about any questions about government pandemic response or climate change? No, no problem there. They had no response to the just-released investigative piece in The Intercept that exposes documents that show Facebook and Twitter closely collaborating with the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, to police what the government deemed disinformation. And their plan is to expand the censorship to topics like the withdrawal from Afghanistan or criticism of the origins of COVID and a major catch-all. They want to go after posts that they consider foment distrust in the U.S. government and U.S. financial institutions. I mean, keep in mind, as the Wall Street Journal said, White House National Climate Advisor Gina McCarthy wants them to censor content on the costs of a force-fed green energy transition. I bet they do. It doesn't bother the celebrities and companies who quit Twitter because they can't tolerate reviews that are different from their own. But it should bother the rest of us. I mean, the assault on free speech and the push by self-titled progressive governments to squelch unapproved views has been evident in gaining momentum for years. I mean, the Canadian government's introduced three separate bills that take aim on the internet at what government deems misinformation, you know, de facto censorship of social media. But they refuse to acknowledge the many clear-cut examples where government itself is purveying misinformation. They've had leading analysts like Michael Geis, Canada Research Chair in the Internet and E-Commerce Law, and uh, Peter Menzies, former CRTC Vice Chair. They've called the legislation uh, dangerous, an attack on free speech and democracy. You know, I like what George Bernard Shaw said, though. He said, don't underestimate how much is at stake in the battle over government censorship and free speech. As he stated, all censorship exists to prevent anyone from challenging current conceptions and existing institutions. All progress is initiated by challenging current conceptions and executed by supplanting existing institutions. Consequently, the first condition of progress is the removal of censorship. Now, I'll give just one final note. This coming Friday is Remembrance Day. It's a day to honor our veterans and members of the military, some who gave their lives to protect our freedoms, freedoms like free speech. Is a monstrous affront to those who served, even died, in the height of hypocrisy for politicians, elites, and members of the public who pretend to honor our veterans and members of the military while taking aim at one of the fundamental freedoms they fought 
and died to protect. That's all the time we have this week. And a reminder, of course, as we've been saying, hey, you can go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. You can click on finally get your tickets for a live in-person World Outlook Conference, February 3rd and 4th. What a great array of speakers we have. We talked earlier, you heard, I hope, Kevin Muir. What a great interview, but he'll be with us and so many more. Martin Armstrong will join us again. Uh, Greg Weldon will join us. The list is a long one. And of course, we'll give you all those details as we go through the next few weeks. But hey, you want to jump on board? Get that ticket. Go ahead right now, mikesmoneytalks.ca. And a reminder, please tell your friends, I appreciate it very much. The more informed we are, the better it is. So tell their friends about Money Talks tweets. Tell their friends about Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook and, of course, mikesmoneytalks.ca. It is much appreciated. Please know that. In the meantime, I hope you have a terrific week.